is hell. With apologies for this morning's technical difficulties and delayed start, live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Are you sitting down? Okay, if you are, are you operating a vehicle? Because if you are not sitting down, sit down. And if you are operating a vehicle, pull over. Because I'm about to say something even I need to sit down just to read as I would certainly collapse if I tried to stand and read what I'm about to say. And that is, the Biden administration may possibly have come up with, maybe, a somewhat adequate immigration policy. I know, even with all those qualifiers of may possibly and somewhat adequate, frankly, I am shocked. Don't get me wrong, Biden's immigration uh, proposal still falls far short of actual justice for migrant workers and does nothing to address the real causes of whatever immigration problem there is. But our guest today does point out that, quote, there are promising components in the Citizenship Act of 2021. It establishes that undocumented students can pay the in-state tuition rate. It proposes ways to promote efficiency in the currently overburdened court system, one being the addition of 55 immigration judges each fiscal year between 2021 and 2024. And there's been a drastic shortage of immigration judges leading to backlogs of cases of people trying to get into the country and proposes alternatives to detention. It creates new categories of employment visas as well as more of them. And it it does even more than that, frankly. But what it does not do is end the criminality imposed upon immigrants. It does not limit the very policed lives of immigrant communities. And it does nothing, absolutely nothing, to address the role of NAFTA, free trade policies, neoliberalism, and the U.S. having a foreign policy friendly only to U.S. business interests, which means it's all about getting cheap workers to exploit. Today, returning to This Is Hell, our guest is urban policy and planning scholar Karina Moreno, who wrote the Jacobin article, Biden's Immigration Reform Doesn't Do Enough to Help Migrant Workers. Karina is a native of Monterey, Mexico, and an associate professor in the Department of Urban Planning and Policy at Hunter College of City University of New York. This is Karina's fourth appearance on This Is Hell. Karina was on most recently, back in 2018, to talk about her then-just-posted article, The Guardian Baseball, Latino American, Latino America's pastime faces new challenges in age of Trump, which she wrote with the writer Mike Elk. And if you are excited about baseball coming back, you should really go back and listen to that interview from 2018 and read her work because it's before the major changes in minor league baseball and it tells you why those changes needed to be made. Also on today's show, we got mail like real mail, like handwritten letter real mail, and it actually arrived via the post office at our office here above Carrie's Lounge. And it included a book, and the letter was not written by the author or one of their representatives. We just got a book from a listener with a handwritten letter about how much they liked the book and why they think the author should be on our show. So I'll be sharing that in just a bit. Also, especially for those of you who are Patreon patrons to This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell and have heard my many many ramblings describing small-town America via the pages of the local community weekly newspaper, the Houghton Lake Resorter, covering Roscommon County in the northern part of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. Another random issue of the paper arrived, and both the date of the issue, as well as the reader's poll question, and the answers the reader can choose from, will surprise you, at the very least. For me, 
for now, just let me tell you. The question is a yes or no question. The reader's poll question is a yes or no question. But readers are given five, count them five different response choices. It's a yes or no question with five multiple choice answers. <sighs> I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth live stream podcast radio show host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, so today's producer is Jess Lipka. Jess, our consecutive Tuesday streak was snapped at two again last week after waking up and uh, getting out of bed and into the shower with the knowledge that the show had already been completely researched and written. I was ready to come in here and give you all a new serving of hell, which was to include a conversation on how the cause of diabetes is sugar overconsumption driven by capitalism and its racism. I suddenly realized I was in no condition to do much of anything but grieve for the loss of my biggest brother. Thanks to... Everybody, everybody who sent condolences, they were truly appreciated. And I can't tell you how much it meant last week when so many of you got in contact with me and told me to take as much time as you need before I ever even considered taking the entire week off. People who work on the show, as well as you, the listeners, were saying, take your time. You actually knew better than I did. Had I rushed right back to work as I wanted because I went to the... Gordy Howe Hockey School of Emotional Awareness, where I was taught to play through pain, whatever the pain is, I would likely have found myself racked with irreconcilable grief again. So I really appreciate you telling me to take my time, something I would not have considered without your advice and support. Damn, I love our listeners. So what have you been up to, Jess? Anything new in your world outside of the horrible problems with the computer this morning? Yeah, so long as the USB doesn't fail, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> um, no, I don't... Uh... I am good. I'm I'm actually going to start being here on Mondays instead of Tuesdays. So. No kidding. Yeah, yeah, my my uh my my classes are are switching up. So, so you're going to be starting the week with us instead. Mm-hmm. So you'll be reading the hangover cure. Yeah. yeah Excellent. Yeah. Very excited to have you here starting the week with you, man. <laughs> That's very cool. More important than my confusing situation with death and whatever, just what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what's the name of your podcast? (laughs) So what's the name of your podcast? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, Jess will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following Karina. So you can email us your thoughts, criticism, and suggestion to chuck at thisishell.com. You can message them to us via Facebook. You can DM them to us via Twitter. And if you do, we will likely share your writing on air because we get the absolute best guest and topic ideas from you or you can just do what listener norm r did and just send us stuff in the mail the actual u.s post office to this is hell 2251 west Devon, second floor chicago illinois 60645 norm writes dear chuck and crew keep up the great work i'm not a huge fan of radio shows and that's where it ends no goes farther keep up the great work i'm not a huge fan of radio shows mostly because they have been bought out by big media but your show is one i don't miss from guests to banter to interview style and tact your show is heads above everyone else i want to recommend a 
guest for your show. I've enclosed a copy of Dr. Lou Mirage's book, Black or Right, Anti-Racist Campus Rhetorics. This is his first published book, which builds on all his previous work of black identity in various spaces. This book, however, calls out the schools that have given him his academic credentials. It explores blackness and white educational institutions. In the end, Lou shows how white academic spaces continue to virtue signal and uphold diversity as a core importance while consistently stopping out black opinions and silencing voices that would bring true difference to their communities. All because those in power are... Hmm, Rick... Sick and in control and unwilling to give up either money or power. It is another tragic outcome of late capitalism and neoliberalism. See, it's handwritten. It's kind of hard to read. In the end, universities, bastions of education and teaching the next generation celebrate how diverse they are white exposing black people while exposing white, uh, black people in them to constant violence. This truly is hell. P.S. I'll be emailing you to offer help. I can work remotely. So thanks, Norm. Thanks for the handwritten letter. Thanks for the book. Thanks for not recommending a book you wrote or had anything to do with whatsoever other than liking it. I'm telling you, our, our listeners absolutely rule. Again, send us your comments on the show, guest or topic suggestions via email, DM us via Twitter, message us via Facebook, or just send us stuff in the actual mail to This Is Hell 2251 West Devon, Chicago, Illinois 60645. Live from the United States, where the law is the crime, this is hell coming up. Biden's immigration proposal isn't all bad, but it still doesn't address the root causes of problems with immigration today. I'll be sharing with you a very, very entertaining multiple choice readers question and even more entertaining choices for answers from a small town newspaper we have been following on Patreon for the past year. But what really makes the question and answers delicious is the date of the issue that finally arrived at my home last week because the question is being asked at a certain moment in history that none of us will ever forget. Jess, again, will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell in just a bit. And our question this week is, so what's the name of your podcast? The person with our favorite answer gets to choose whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want as their prize. And you can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Also coming up, Jess will be telling you who is on tomorrow's show. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. The Biden administration insists its new immigration proposal will address the root causes of the migration and immigration problems faced by migrants and migrant workers today. The idea is to undo the cruel policies of the Trump administration to make migration more humane. But to do that, you actually have to address those root causes. And as our guest will explain, that's not what the Biden plan or any uh, immigration plan the U.S. has ever had does or has done at any time in U.S. history. Here to help us understand the Biden administration's immigration policy and proposal urban policy and planning scholar Karina Moreno wrote the Jacqueline article, Biden's immigration reform doesn't do enough to help migrant workers. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Karina. To hear your voice. Um, thanks for having me on. It's great to have you back on. This is Karina's fourth appearance on This Is Hell. Karina was last on the show back in 2018 to talk about her then-just-posted article, The Guardian Baseball, Latino America's Pastime Faces New Challenges in Age of Trump, which she wrote with Mike Elk. You can follow uh, Karina on Twitter, at Carrie in Brooklyn. 
Karina is a native of Monterey, Mexico, and an associate professor in the Department of Urban, Urban Policy and Planning at Hunter College of City University of New York. So you write that within the Biden administration's first month in office, Senator Robert Menendez and Representative Linda Sanchez, they released a bicameral proposal for a comprehensive immigration reform. The United States mm-hmm. Citizenship Act of 2021, co-sponsored by 80 members of Congress, to provide an earned path to citizenship, to address the root causes of migration, and po- and responsibly manage the southern border, and to reform the immigrant visa system and for other purposes via the yes. so via that U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021. What do Menendez and Sanchez think are the root causes of migration? Because Fox News is reporting it's all about migrants who are coming to the U.S. border who want jobs. They want to get jobs in the United States. But when we talk to Ruth Milkman, who is the author of Immigrant Labor and the New Procurement, Mm -hmm. she was saying that most of these people are not people who are coming for jobs. They are asylum seekers. Asylum and refugees. Right. So so while Fox News reports that that the jobs of the root cause of migration, Ruth argues, it's actually people seeking safety from violence. What do Menendez and Sanchez say are the root causes of migration then within this bill? Right. Well, okay. There are a couple, there are a couple of things here. This bill is um, 353 pages long. It doesn't explicitly name the uh, root causes. And as you mentioned, you know, just a minute ago, root causes has never been in in, in a bill um, at the forefront, like at, at the center. And I'm sure that that is due to long, 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 long years of, of organizing um, people locally. But uh, so they include this, this uh, focal point about addressing root causes, um, which of, of course, I mean, this is, in the United States, this is going to be foreign intervention in other countries and and free trade, right? Like what causes the, the mobility of people? They don't name that in the bill. Um, they sort of <laughs> put that as as a priority on, on how this is going to work. Um, they outline, you know, a number of, of different resources and support to to figure out you know, how, how that'll work. It's not, well, I'll, I'll wait for your response because I, if not, I'll go all over the place, but it, it, there are two different things here. One is immigrants who are here in the United States, probably from Mexico. Um, that's been a long standing, you know, with the, with, Federal programs that started during labor shortages due to World War II and and so on, but we're we're dealing with that, and as well in the asylum seekers from uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. So Mexico is not mentioned once in the entire three hundred and fifty three pages, which is very weird. Um, they're they're essentially just speaking to asylum seekers from Central America. So asylum seekers and refugees seeking to get into the United States, is that a relatively, you know, historically, is that a relatively new problem due to 
different, possibly, U.S. policy in Latin America? Is there more of a demand for asylum seekers and refugees to come into the United States than in the past? It's it's complete disruption in their countries that that was provoked, that was incited by the United States. So free trade policies and foreign intervention. I mean, you have families and communities that are fleeing um, because of danger, because of very real violence, you know, uh, gang controls of controls of, of different territories and, and whatnot. So they're, you know, when, when you try to, when you come to the U.S. border to petition for asylum, you're not exactly, uh, you know, it's, it's not a holiday. It is um, because you're scared for your life. So you know, one of the things I saw this morning on social media is there's a meme going around of, uh, it basically says that because there are still children in cages at the border, it's clear that the people who were upset about children in cages at the border were not really upset about that. They were really, they just hated Trump. That, that, oh, yeah. So they're not really concerned about. Oh. So, so my question to you is, how <laughs> different is the Biden administration policy from the Trump administration policy? Because you say it is better, but it does fall short. So when it comes to those kids in cages, right. how much different is the uh, Biden policy from the Trump policy? I, I am stuck in this thought of when I saw Michelle Obama at the Democratic convention, um, when she used the term kids in cages, and I just my head exploded because family incarceration began, was created as a solution uh, during the the Obama administration. Um, So (laughs) let let me get out of this this headspace. Um, I I think the bill, so, and and the way you introduced it, I have a face like, like it's not that good. It's good that it mentions things that, it proposes things, it mentions things that never have been at the center before. Um, but it doesn't talk, I mean, okay, uh, uh, policing, uh, ICE, uh, deportations, like none of that will change. Um, and essentially, you know, it, it depends a lot on how the implementation of these root causes will work. Um, I do think that also what they propose with, you know, the different, it's a path to citizenship in three segments. It takes eight years to, eight years to be able to apply to become a citizen, right? To become naturalized. So those eight years are very much unstable anything you know you get pulled over by police all these things matter right like you have to almost it's like eight years of parole where you can't have a single uh slip up and we also know that different communities naturalize at at different rates right so i i i It's bad. (laughs) It's really bad. It's it's bad. Yeah. (laughs) You write that uh, Biden's proposal, excuse me, Biden's proposal recognizes the harm inflicted by previous and current policies and acknowledges that a different approach is necessary. It breaks from the usual demands that have escalated the use of force, 
resources and tax dollars, especially since September 11. So as factcheck.org reported back in 2005, all the 9-11 attackers had visas and entered the U.S. legally, mostly through mm-hmm. Orlando, Miami, Washington, or New York. None came across yep. the Mexican border. What does that increase in force against migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border? When none of the 9-11 suspects entered the U.S. through the border yep. with Mexico, what does that reveal to you about the U.S. and the way it approaches immigration? The perception of the other and the, the fear and the threat. You know, Alabama... Uh, past like very very uh, racist bill even though they're you know they have like less than than two percent immigrants in their whole state um so i think a lot of you know this is what we're dealing with is that we don't we're, we're not arguing about facts we're arguing about stories and we're arguing arguing about perceptions um and there's been a lot with, you know, uh, people have already heard the the caravan, right? And like all the unaccompanied children. Um, and I think there's real fear that people are going to come in and, and and take advantage, right? And like steal from something that's supposed to, to go to a, uh, you know, good American. Just in the way that you, you read the bill, it, you know, it, it proposes uh, a, a, a way for someone to earn, right? Like this is all based on, it, it's, it's all using language of deservedness, like who, are, you know, who will earn their right to be here. Meanwhile, those eight years, you are paying fees, you are paying taxes, you are abiding all the, all the laws, I mean, <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's. When it comes to that perception, you write that the bill revises terminology, striking the word alien and replacing it with the term non-citizen in the Immigration and Nationality Act. Has the term alien, has that just always been used? Was this a new practice? Why, why is this change from alien to non-citizen significant to you? I mean, I can tell you from being an undocumented person myself, um, yeah, all, all my paperwork said alien. So it, it I mean, I, I, I was young. I really did internalize that. You know, I did internalize that I was an outsider, uh, a foreigner. Um, so I know that it's a gesture, but I also, from my own experience as a young person coming to this country without papers can say that it, it matters. I, <laughs> I don't know if it, um, like for me, it, it, it's, you know, I, it's been in my head so long that it won't matter to, to people maybe right now, but future ge- generations of immigrants that don't hear the word alien. Yeah. I think that would, that would be a, a more positive experience, I guess. Yeah, especially illegal alien, which makes it even worse. You, yeah. you write the effects of uh, NAFTA on workers were uniformly negative across all countries of uh, Canada, the United States, and Mexico, but in different ways. In Mexico, NAFTA destroyed the farm sector 
and rural economies, but less circulated is that this empowered the use of the black market for the smuggling of commercial contraband, as well as migrants into the United States, and as the U.S. increasingly militarized its border, the increased risk drove up the cost of smuggling, the number of migrant deaths, political corruption, violence, drug flows, and gang territorial control in Mexico. So mm-hmm. how much worse was and is the drug war due to NAFTA? Because that is a connection that not many people have made, that NAFTA actually promoted the drug war. Oh, yeah. I mean, right. NAFTA is the free movement of commerce, but not of people. And so it, it just escalated the, the use of of all these networks, right, that that are criminal or organized crime, and and yes, I mean that that is exactly the the outcome. Like that's what what happens as a result of the U.S. doing more of the same every time. So you know, every election cycle, every you know, whenever they need political points, political you know, for pol- political expediency they'll just in, you know increase add more escalations to to a, a, a border that's already militarized um and while that would get you know people in in alabama maybe to feel better it just drove up the number of of smuggling and uh, you know thing of, of things that were still going to happen but just made them a lot more um risky But luckily, Karina, we don't have NAFTA anymore. Now we have the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement that Donald Trump put (laughs) into place because he said that NAFTA was the worst deal that anybody had ever made. So will the USMCA, will that save farms in rural economies in Mexico, stifle smuggling, demilitarize the border, and address migrant deaths, political corruption, violence, and drug flows you see as being exacerbated by NAFTA? Is that going to have any impact on it? Huh, I'm I'm not sure it's too I mean as as a researcher I'm like well it's too early to too early to tell but I mean just as a as an immigrant I'm like I'm sure it's going to be an ongoing the way that we've seen so far it's an incremental system right it, um the one thing so because it is an incremental system the one thing that I thought was was very strange was the cutting back on the the number of resources for um you know like the border wall the well maybe trump really really focused on the border wall but if you look at the funding for homeland security i mean that's been a huge um it's been a huge budget that's been incremental year after year no matter matter you know it doesn't matter if it was a Republican or, or a Democrat um, president. So I think that's one of the things that really breaks away. Um, what uh, what other things? I mean, I also just want to mention the the timing, and 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 maybe the the Jacobin argument or the Jacobin article reads too nicely <laughs> or like too positive also they changed my original title my original title was reforming immigration reaffirming exploitation <laughs> um but i i want to talk about like the, the 
very, very important window that just that just passed by. Um, and that has to do with COVID and the essential worker. So for uh, for a Democrat, Democratic president to come in and, and bring up immigration reform this early, I mean, it suggests that he's using some sort of political capital um, on this. But then I, I think we just blew away, like I, I think we wasted an opportunity to, to really push for um, better protections for the work of, of, of immigrants, right? Like what, what was it? Like two out of three essential workers are undocumented immigrants. And yet, you know, we, we have supposedly like democratic control. We, we didn't push for, for that. Like we didn't push for better protections. Well, to you, what explains why that moment was or is being wasted? What, what explains that to you? Well, I see, and and again, this I, I, this is my observation. It's not uh, you know peer reviewed or anything, but I think that people are, but with COVID, people definitely shifted. I, I think there was a, a change in perception in the sense that most people understood that the person that was delivering their Postmates, you know, was probably an undocumented immigrant. And so, you know, maybe, maybe that, maybe that is a, uh, a positive thing, but also I do think that there's, so that shift in perception of like that person becoming more humanized and, and more real, um, that that's not enough though. I still think that people do, you know, there, there is, and that still reinforces like a, a superiority, right. And, and, and an inferiority. So that would be my guess. And that kind of, like you write about in your article, that kind of imposition of criminality upon all immigrants, especially those from uh, Mexico. You write, beyond the United States, the bill proposes international development with the governments of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras to understand the determinants of the fleeing of families and children, the barriers to democratic governance, and the channels to combat corruption, disrupt money laundering, criminal networks, and human smuggling networks. So is the Biden administration, is, the, is their immigration policy a direct challenge to the ruling governments in El Salvador, Guatemala, and human rights governments with very poor human rights records and all fully supported yeah. by the United States. Is the Biden administration yeah. challenging corrupt allies the U.S. put in and keep in power? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I, and they, Jacobin was, you know, my editor was very smart to do this, but I, I kind of wanted to have a joke on like Biden talking to himself um, because when he was vice president, he uh, worked out programs with the same countries, and that didn't change anything. It, it you know, it just like increased corruption um, and violence. So it's a, con a it's a contradiction to what is done in the past. And the worst thing is that I don't think it, I, I don't think Bi uh, Biden as vice president, I don't think any you know the the administration really learned what those root causes were and what, you know, what to do about them. Um, so now they, what, what's the number they've announced 
like four billion dollars set aside to to work on this. But I, I mean, when when Biden was vice president, they were giving each country seven hundred and fifty million dollars per year to try to to get you know <laughs> asylum seekers to stay in their countries, and that's something that is. So like that's a continuity thread between the Trump administration and this Biden administration is that they both do not want anyone from Guatemala, Honduras, or El Salvador to make it to the US border. Um, and that's because, so this is the other new thing that I thought was very, very strange. Um, the Biden proposal, they are suggesting setting up processing centers for asylum seekers and you go to this processing center and you stay in your country <laughs> until uh yeah i mean until i guess they let you know whether you can come in or not but that's new but well i guess like the 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 facade of it is 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 new but the intention is not like it's the same intention that the Trump administration had. And you also write that as Vice President Joe Biden led an aid strategy that allocated seven, like you were just saying, $750 million a year to reduce the number of unaccompanied minors fleeing their homes in Central America for the United States. Mm -hmm. This funded a series of initiatives, including after school and job readiness programs, which I swear to God are the solutions to every problem that the Democrats come up with. But it resulted in little to no impact on addressing the root causes of migration, which have only worsened since then, well before the disruption of COVID-19 on Central American economies. Why don't after school and job readiness programs address the root causes of migration? And to you, what explains offering such expensive programs that do absolutely no good whatsoever? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. I'm very curious on, on, you know, how I, I and that I've looked for information. It's not exactly like easy to find like how does this get allocated how does it make it to people to work i've i've read you know somewhat that it doesn't quite reach workers in the industries that that most need it but um <laughs> it, it, it sounds comical like after school programs um i guess there is this idea of of like very locally like at a, at a very local level sort of miraculously you know changing the the whole um political climate what this seems like so much is a neoliberal solution to a neoliberal problem because you write president biden's current proposal allows work authorization but excludes immigrants or lawful prospective immigrant status from any social benefit, mandates their participation in a private market to purchase health insurance, and allows no room for error with anything related to the IRS. So how much of a boon is Biden's immigration policy for the private health care industry? Because I remember health insurers' mm -hmm. stocks skyrocketed imme immediately following Biden seemingly clinching the Democratic Party's nomination, beating Bernie Sanders, who had a very different policy toward health care. Mm -hmm. How much is this a gift from the Biden administration to private health care providers? I mean, yeah, you are forced to participate in 
in a in a private market um and then i just i just also want to say because i i found it just personally hurtful that some of the language is from the 19 bill clinton's 1996 like welfare reform social benefit immigrants who are not um naturalized citizens are forbidden from touching anything right not that much not that there's like much social uh, there's like an actual social welfare state but that's been established uh, in 1996, this bill brings it up again, citing that original bill, but just reinforcing again, um, by the way, you can't touch any of this. Um, yeah, it would, it, I guess this would be for the, the healthcare industry, the way that Trump was for private prisons. Right. And how much do you think profit? How much do you think that the the private industry around immigration right now forms policy around immigration? Does private do people profit from the problems that we are having with immigration at the border? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think even just defining. So for the government to define a problem. You know, it like presents, it like immediately presents a solution and, and, you know, you, depending on, on what it is, we'll, we'll mention if it's privatized, if, if it's outsourced or not. But I mean, the, the, you have a lot of children staying in places that are privatized, but are nonprofit, like not for profits. Um, I think there's a rise in that, you know, there have been a few, um, there's been a few uh, books, th- things written about the nonprofit industrial complex, and completely, I think every you know, I think people make people who capital. I think capital writes policy, and then you know, the state ends up implementing implementing it in a way that just needs more. You know, like it broadens the the marketplace. You also you write about the uh, Clinton proposal, uh, the Clinton plan, and how even Bill Clinton thought that his parts of the of his plan when it came to immigration were, you know, he saw that they were faulty as well. You write the proposal, uh, the Biden proposal also fails to challenge the discriminatory nature of immigration enforcement. The bill prioritizes bars over family unity. Bars are disciplinary bans that keep family members who are deported from reentering the United States for a period of three years, 10 years, or indefinitely. Immigrants of... uh, Uh, prospective status are deliberately excluded from any public benefit as a result of Bill Clinton's crime and welfare reforms, which the Clintons themselves admitted were an outstanding failure. So why do they continue? Why is an admittedly uh, disastrous Clinton policy still in place? What do you think Clinton's intent was in this destructive policy toward immigrants? Why is it still in place? And what do you think his intent was? I think the intent is this us and them, um, you know, between, I mean, white people are very fearful of black people, of brown people. Um, I don't know how people will feel when I say that, but, but that, that's my honest answer. Um, and why does it stay? Because once it's in place, it's difficult to get rid of, you know, the, 
the, I've said incremental like seven times, but this is why it's really difficult to, to really make changes in, in the way government functions because there's a whole apparatus now. There's a whole national security. There's a whole like immigration, border patrol, ICE. There's a whole system that is, uh, you know, a huge chunk of, of the federal budget. That's not going to go away. And now, you know, the, it's even more connected with with local police on 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 the ground. So that's not going away. The perception. It's needed, like the perception of immigrants as the other, the, like that's still necessary for for them to get away with the the theft, right? Like the theft that capitalism does, like the from that for them to get away from to get away with not looking at climate change or not um, spending their time on more worthwhile causes. Um, so let's see, one of the things that I wanted to say, this is a very, I think it's interesting that it's connected to Reagan because the last amnesty that we had in the US was 35 years ago and it was Ronald Reagan um, that did that. And in that context, he was counting on the invisibility of immigrants because they were out of sight. They were, you know, they worked agriculture um, and I think this is a problem now that workers are much more visible. Especially during the pandemic. I've got two, just two more questions for you, Karina. Uh, first, um, you write that through the uncertainty of the backlog and the changes in implementation, how will the logics of national security in both countries break in both countries, the United States and Mexico, especially if it is dominated and has dominated a political discourse and practice in the United States without deliberately naming its colonial and racist origin? Even during Biden's 100 day moratorium on deportations, the United States continued deportations of black Haitian immigrants, yes. which nobody is discussing yes. this at all. So can to what extent do you think? COVID can cause some level, any level of reckoning with the U.S. history of racism and colonialism? Can the virus be the revolution that many have been waiting for? It should have been. It should have been. And, and that's a little painful. It should have been. I... I don't think that it, it's happening. One last question for you, Karina. We have been speaking with urban policy and planning scholar Karina Moreno, who wrote the Jacobin article, Biden's immigration reform doesn't do enough to help migrant workers. But again, Karina, could you tell us what your headline was for your article? <laughs> yeah, they, I was low key, you know, a little mad that they switched it um my title was reforming immigration reaffirming 
exploitation. Which is a much, much better headline. Karina is, a, Karina is a native of Monterey, Mexico, and an associate professor in the Department of Urban Planning and Policy at Hunter College, Hunter College of City University of New York. This is Karina's fourth appearance on This Is Hell. You can hear all of our conversations with Karina by going to thisishell.com and searching on her last name, Moreno, M-O-R-E-N-O. And you can follow Karina on Twitter at Carrie in Brooklyn, one last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Yesterday, we were <laughs> speaking with Telesur, Brazil Wire, and Brazil 24-7 journalist Brian Muir. And I asked him the exact same question from hell because I think this is something that is not considered enough. When we hear these phrases that politicians use, that seem to take the violence, the cruelty, the brutality out of what they're actually saying. Karina, to you, what are U.S. business interests in Mexico? Because that's what we're always told. We're always just told that the president, whoever it is, is protecting U.S. business interests or advancing U.S. business interests. So what are those U.S. business interests in Mexico? They never say what they are. This is what they say now about Central America, right? That they need to set up a system of collaborative leadership where the person in that country is someone who prioritizes and and is cautious about U.S. business interests. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they they ruined our corn. Like, our corn was our identity. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we couldn't even... Farmers and, and, and... my country weren't even able to to grow and, and sell it anymore. So I think, yeah, I think a lot of of the business discourse hides the the devastating reality of of breaking up families, of of uh, uh, just sending a country, a series of countries, just spiraling into very, very deep poverty. Karina, your answer to the question from hell was as hellish as Brian's was. I really thank you for being back on the show, Karina. You know, I'm going to... I want to say just one more thing, please. Okay. Um, Because, I don't know, maybe we can, you know, maybe we can place bets and see what happens with this bill. But, um, so just so that it's official somewhere. Uh, my prediction, my prediction, like what is going to happen with this? I don't think this bill will pass, but I do think that a that three bills will pass. One for the DACA students, right, like the Dreamers. Right. Um, one for the agriculture. Um, uh, yeah, the agricultural workers, and the last for the essential worker COVID. And that's why I'm saying we missed our opportunity because that should have been tied in stronger so that they were all on equal footing and they won't be. Instead, they're going to be all compartmentalized. Uh, yeah. More important than any of that, Karina, I I got to ask what the drilling was that was happening in your apartment. I'm so sorry. I told Jess, I told Jess and he was like, well, it, you know, it's not going on right now. So fingers crossed. Um, someone moved in in the apartment upstairs and this is the the nicest that it's been in like two weeks it's yeah just constant 
drilling and and yeah so you've pretty much you don't hear it anymore do you <laughs> i i got different headphones i like <laughs> wrote them a note you know it's not nice um yeah, I, I, yeah, no, I, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> All right, Karina, thank you so much for being on the show, and I hope that you uh, have your noise problem fixed in the near future. Thank you so much for being back on our show, and I really thank appreciate you, it. And I'm going to annoy you to get you back on again. Oh, no, I love it. I feel like the, the fifth one, you get like a mug or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is Hell. This week's question from Hell is, so what's the name of your podcast? So what's the name of your podcast? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins. Your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want, you can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio or you can email it to me at chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner jess do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell which is again so what's the name of your podcast marco g says Everything's Getting Better, a podcast that discusses world news, quoting mainstream sources, makes uninformed conclusions, and makes constant, unnecessary pop culture references. Sweet. I think you can just get that on CNN. <laughs> um, Dan K, The Aristocrats. Um, <laughs> what's, what's the name of your podcast? Nick A says, yes, it is. And who is the host? <laughs> God. Yeah. <laughs> bad <one>. Yikes. <laughs> Abbott and Costello references. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good lord. Uh, Jeff C. Gotta do something with your time. Sp uh, Spencer N. Squabbling bobbleheads. What's the name of your podcast? Philip A. Welcome to Hell. Airs Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. with your curmudgingly pockmarked host, Charles Miraz. Each week, Welcome to Hell explores a global problem that is underreported in the mainstream news and surveys experts to identify innovate mar innovative markets-oriented solutions that cut through the clutter of partisan and interest group conflict, a great antidote to our increasingly polarized political environment. For our first episode, Charles Miraz will interview Kashama Sawant <laughs> with questions that are at once combative, dismissive, and utterly soporific. To wrap up, Jess Dorfman will blow your mind with the discussion of plagiarism, intellectual property, and the many worlds theory of quantum physics. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. Wow. That's a lot. And by the way, Jess, exceptional read, my friend. Oh, thank you. Yeah, he combined me and me and Jeff. Yes. I like that. Very clever. Any more? <laughs> yeah. Um, Patrick F., uh, Attack and Dethrone Godcast. Uh, Sluver S., Kratom Science Podcast. <laughs> What's the name of your podcast? Uh, Jack B. No Fun, a podcast where I interview people on the street about the Stooges. That sounds cool. <laughs> that does sound kind of cool. Um, David Z. Uh, Prostate of the Union. Krimsky K. The Year of the Long Year. And last, Donald H. Podcast name. Sorry I'm late. Subject matter. What, what was big six months ago? <laughs> We will have even more of your answers to this week's question from Mel on tomorrow's show. And again, 
We will be announcing the winner at the end of Thursday's show following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. So last week, while taking the week off to mourn the loss of my biggest brother, Matt Mertz, an issue of the Small Town Weekly newspaper from the northern part of Michigan's Lower Peninsula, the Houghton Lake Resorter, arrived at my doorstep. My family has been going to the same resort on Houghton Lake for 61 years from before I was born. And while I missed a few when I was younger and even more uh, broke than I am right now, my brother, Matt, he never, never missed one year, going to the lake every year for at least two weeks. So getting a resorter in the mail gave me a, a kind of warm feeling as it reminded me of being with my brother, Matt, at the lake. Now our neighborhood post office here in Chicago has been seriously understaffed throughout the pandemic, so mail for the last year has been unpredictable at best. So the last issue I got of the Houghton Lake Resorter in late February was actually dated January 14th, and on the March 5th Patreon podcast, I shared what locals were writing in the Your Opinion section of the editorial page the week immediately following the January 6th U.S. Capitol siege. And in the Your Opinion section, it's a battle royale between the vast majority of people within the community who believe everything Fox News says and the minority who have just as much blind faith in MSNBC. Yes, it's quite a debate. But when I picked up the resorter, I noticed it was a bit heavier than usual. When I unfolded it, inside was another edition of the resorter, dated April 9th, 2020, which was a time right when the pandemic had arrived in Roscommon County, which still only had cases in the single digits many long months before the area would become a hotspot for the virus hospitalizing hundreds and killing dozens throughout the end of fall and early winter. So the first thing you notice about the April 9th, 2020 issue of the Houghton Lake Resorter is there are no letters to the editor from community members because there is no Your Opinion section on the editorial page, which is really weird because it's there in every issue. And I'm betting that lots of letters violated the resorter's standards, especially those standards that state personal attacks and attacks on local businesses will not be tolerated or printed. There's a lot of rage, anger, and guns up north on both sides, and it's very likely the locals are very upset. Didn't give a damn about the resorter's standards at the time. So the reader poll question in the April 9th, 2020 issue a time when everyone was realizing the importance of essential workers, as Karina was just pointing out, how they were underpaid and undervalued. The question for readers is, Jess, you're going to love this. The reader poll question is, are you an essential worker? Now, I have no idea why a newspaper was asking a question that sounded like someone from the U.S. Census Bureau would ask. But there it was. Are you an essential worker? Question straightforward, simple, not the kind of question you'd expect from a reader's polls, as it is a question that demands either a yes or no response. So why does the resorter give us five different choices for the answer to the question? So your response choices, Jess, to are you an essential worker are yes, but I wish I wasn't. No, and I'm glad I'm not. Yes, and I wear it like a badge of honor. No, but I do wish I was still working. <laughs> and the final answer to choose from to the question, are you an essential worker, is 
I'm retired. So, are you an essential worker? Yes, but I wish I wasn't, which is frightening considering the chances of getting the virus as an essential worker. In this part of Michigan, essential workers are not making much money. Nobody's making much money. No, and I'm glad I'm not, which is just kind of dicky. Yes, and I wish it. I wear it like a badge of honor, and anyone wearing their job as a badge of honor is just weird, and you got to just wonder where their priorities are. So, other, no, but I wish I was still working, which is depressing, and I'm retired, which very indirectly answers the question of, are you an essential worker? And the final poll numbers are in. The April 9th, 2020 Houghton Lake Resorter Reader's Poll asking, are you an essential worker? 9% answered yes, but I wish I wasn't. Which is the same number that answered no, but I wish I was still working. Which is sad. 12% answered no, and I'm glad I'm not. 13% said yes, and I wear it like a badge of honor. And the winner at a stunning 54% is, you guessed it, I'm retired. So the question should have just been, for the reader's poll, are you retired? And I'm starting to regret throwing out all the back issues of the resorter because I never noticed how ridiculous the Houghton Lake Resorter reader poll truly is, or was. Jess, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com? On tomorrow's show, we have Thomas Frank, um, and I need to look up the article that he's going to be talking I, about. I've got it here. He's going to be talking about his article that's at The Guardian. Liberals want to blame right-wing misinformation for our problems get real. In progressive circles these days, there's a palatable horror of the uncurated world of thought spaces flourishing outside the consensus. Thanks to everyone who showed their appreciation for This Is Hell by supporting us at thisishell.com by clicking on support. Thanks today goes out to Sharon W. Thank you, Sharon, for your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thank you, Jess, for producing, and thank you for getting us through all the problems that we had earlier on the show. Thanks to Karina Moreno, our guest. Thanks to Alex Jerry for uh, booking the guest and helping with Jess this morning. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>